Have you ever thought to yourself, why can't I find what I'm searching for? Me too. I expect brands and retailers to make search relevant and make recommendations that are aligned with my preferences and buying history. That means being my shopping guide and surprising me with items I didn't even know I needed. For retailers, this is what Coveo's AI-powered search delivers. By learning from every website visit and query, Coveo builds insights and profiles that predict relevant suggestions for each visitor, often before they've even started searching. Learn about how Coveo can help increase your online conversion rates, basket size, and repeat traffic by visiting Coveo.com. That's C-O-V-E-O.com. Hello and welcome to the Retail Rundown podcast. I'm your host, Julia Raymond Hare. If you're a regular, you might have noticed that I'm returning from a one-month hiatus from our wonderful show. During that time, I enjoyed working remotely from the gorgeous, beautiful country of Portugal. It needs two adjectives there because it's amazing. There were local delicacies like grilled sardines, green wine, cliff-lined beaches, and just being immersed in a different culture was wonderful. Also, part of our team here at Rethink is based in Lisbon, so we got to collaborate a bit in person. Quick thank you to our exceptional guest hosts for the past few weeks and to our production team who keeps this top-rated show rolling year-round. With that said, it feels great to be back with our excellent guest today, Rosemary Coates. Rosemary is a supply chain expert. She's the executive director of the Reshoring Institute and president of Blue Silk Consulting. Thank you, Rosemary, for being here on the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. And for our listeners, before we dive in, you should know Rosemary is the author of five books, including a bestseller on Amazon called 42 Rules for Sourcing and Manufacturing in China. So, of course, we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Rosemary, I'd like you to kick us off. You can tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, and also we'll dive a little bit into the state of the global supply chain. So I've been in management consulting for over 25 years and spent a good part 15 years or so helping companies with their global manufacturing strategies, primarily offshoring to China and setting up operations in China. And I became an expert at that. That's what the executives I was working with wanted me to do. And so we did that. And then uh, along about 2012, both Barack Obama and Mitt Romney were running for president and they were both China bashing like crazy. And I'm going, oh, man, I can't tell anybody what I do for a living. You know, <laughs> this is awful. So uh, that was started to get to me as well as looking at how many people were being laid off and how many plants we were closing in the U.S. And it just didn't feel good anymore and didn't feel right. Mm. And then on top of that, I have five grandkids and we had a family reunion. I'm looking at my grandkids thinking, you know, if I keep sending all this manufacturing offshore, these kids aren't going to have much of a future. Nothing to really, you know, be substantial because manufacturing is the backbone of our economy. And I knew we were putting a big hole in the middle class. So all of that combined together. And I had this brainstorm idea one day thinking, you know, if we started an institute 
that was focused on research and helping university students learn, you know, we could maybe make a difference. And so out of that became the Reshoring Institute. So now we help lots and lots of companies at the Reshoring Institute. We're nonprofit, nonpartisan, and we have low cost consulting rates. So we're helping lots of companies with this decision to bring manufacturing back. On the other side, my Blue Silk Consulting firm is still working very much in global strategy and global manufacturing, and also a place where I do expert witness work. So I get involved with lots of legal cases involving international supply chain disputes, and that's really quite interesting also. Wow. I think you are the first guest on the show to have that kind of experience uh, and work being an expert witness. I do want to say, you know, it sounds like a great initiative, a respectable mission that you have at both your company and Blue Salt Consulting and really timely because just last year around this time in the UK, companies like Amazon, Ikea, Nike were called to parliament to address some claims that their suppliers might be using forced labor. And it's really a tough issue. And from your work as a witness and both of your companies that you run, like what are some of the greatest challenging that supply chain leaders are facing today? Well, clearly, when the pandemic started, it introduced so much risk into global supply chains. You know, companies that were happily importing from China and sourcing worldwide and so forth, all of a sudden got pinched um, because the supply chain shut down, starting with Wuhan, China, which is the automotive center of China. So it's like the Detroit of China. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they shut down the city. And within a week, companies around the world were experiencing shortages of auto parts. So, you know, really introduced risk in, into the supply chain in a way that we'd never seen before. I think it really pointed out the vulnerabilities in our supply chains around the world. And people couldn't get parts, you know, they couldn't continue their production lines because I saw a headline that said, you can't make a car with three wheels. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. You know, <laughs> You can't get the parts. You can't produce your product. So, you know, it became such a huge risk. You mentioned um, the forced labor and what's happening with the Uyghurs in China. This is a critical issue. I think we've known forced labor, prison labor, and, you know, other kinds of human rights issues have been going on for a long time, for sure. But this discovery about the prison camps and, and the Uyghurs has sort of rocked a lot of supply chains around the world where companies had to sit up and take notice of what was happening in their supply chains and why weren't they aware of this? Why weren't they controlling it? You know, what steps do they have to take now to make sure that doesn't continue to happen? And it sounds like it's something that is so complex. And in some areas, it's still not required by a regulation. So it's not something that all companies choose to take on for a number of reasons, and a lot of them valid. But how do you like creating a transparent supply chain is not easy, right? Because there's oftentimes so many different suppliers. How do you consult brands and retailers and manufacturers to approach this? Well, you know, I, I really wish there was a silver bullet, <laughs> but there yeah. isn't. You know, it's all about maintaining control over your global supply chain and knowing where things are coming from, understanding who those suppliers, uh, tier one and tier two and tier three suppliers, who they are, where they are, and what kind of operations are they running. And that takes a lot of manpower like we've never seen before. If you're sourcing in the U.S., for example, you don't have so many of those issues and maybe you can get away with fewer people 
to run your operations here. And, you know, hopefully that's one component of what you're thinking about. But when you have a global supply chain, it's very important to be hands-on and to understand what all of those components of the supply chain consist of. You know, it isn't just the Uyghurs. If you go back a few years, you may remember the Rana Plaza in Bangladesh that collapsed and killed about 1,300 people. Now, there's a sewing factory that was built on top of a poorly constructed building up to four stories that were built on top of the first story. Mm. And they started experiencing cracks in the walls and so forth. And some of the workers refused to come to work and were fired. And the rest of them, you know, being so desperate to even work at these low wage jobs, went to work. And even though the building was starting to crack, they were told, you know, work anyway, it'll be fine. And sure enough, you know, the building collapsed. So, Understanding those kind of situations, there were a lot of big brands that were being manufactured in Rana Plaza. You know, even though I think most of the companies were aware that they were manufacturing there, they didn't audit to the extent that they understood this was a a significant risk in terms of the building and how they were putting human beings at risk in this situation. So, you know, there's no substitute for hands-on global supply chain management. It has to be done and has to be done extensively. And that means you've got to hire extra staff. So if you take a step up and you look at the landscape, you'll see that adding people and control and global supply chain adds a lot of cost. And so when we're looking at total cost of ownership, if you take into consideration all those kinds of additional costs, suddenly it becomes much more competitive and interesting to manufacture in America. And uh, so then we're helping companies now make those decisions. So you're saying total cost of ownership of running a global supply chain with that hands-on management, which you said there's no substitute for. The trade-off, in a way, is, is bringing it back to the U.S. because the overhead is so incredible. Yeah, that's one aspect of it. What we're experiencing right now today are skyrocketing logistics costs. Holy cow. We used to be able to get a a container from, you know, uh, Shanghai or Shenzhen, China uh, to the U.S. West Coast for about $1,500. Wow. And today's price is six, seven thousand dollars, maybe more for the same container if you can get it. So not only do you have to queue up to get container space and shipping space from China in particular, but around the world, but the price has gone up so significantly. And, you know, that makes it difficult to stay in business if you're operating on a thin margin. Absolutely. And Rosemary, are you saying that cost is pre-pandemic averages compared to post? Or is this something that has taken five years or so from going $1,500 for a container from China all the way up to six or 7000 well, It's only been the last couple of years, two years maybe max. And that's when supply chains were at risk because of the pandemic. In today's environment, the cost of logistics is so high for a few reasons. So Primarily, it's because of the container imbalance around the world. There's too many containers that are in the Western Hemisphere and not enough in China where they're trying to ship products out. So, you know, if you have your products ready to go and there's no container available. (laughs) You're out of luck. (laughs) Yeah, you're out of luck. Exactly. So that will eventually ride itself. I, I would say probably within the next 18 months or so, it'll even out a little bit. But, you know, there are also issues like 
port congestion. Maybe you get that container and you get it on the ship and you pay your $7,000 and you get to the port of Oakland. And for as far as you can see, there are ships waiting to be unloaded. So you could wait in the harbor for two or three weeks before your ship could be unloaded. Wow. Two or three weeks? Yeah. Logistics is just amazing. And it's not just the port of Oakland. I I live in Silicon Valley, so I watch things here. It's the same situation in most ports around the world. There's port congestion all of a sudden. We thought the economy had taken a big downturn when COVID really was in full swing in March and April, May of 2020. But it created such sort of chaos in global supply chains that it's, you know, got ripple effects to this day. I mean, even the ship in the Suez Canal that we all thought was funny and the late night comedians, you know, Stephen Colbert joking about <laughs> it. and so But, you know, it had ripple effects around the world when, when uh, ships couldn't get through the Panama Canal. And so we're still working off the backlog from the Suez Canal. So all, all these things regarding logistics have made a huge difference in the cost and in the timing of goods coming to the U.S. Wow. I had no idea some of the things that you shared just now about why the cost of logistics are so high from the port congestion, the container imbalance. These are all very real issues. You know, is it something that China, their role in the global supply chain was already shifting or has the pandemic brought to light problems that were already going on or are these completely new problems solely because of the pandemic that you foresee going away? Probably some of each. As I mentioned before, we expected to have this major downturn during the pandemic period, especially the early period that we were going to have a major recession and and so forth. And it never really materialized. In fact, the import statistics tell us that we imported more goods from China last year than we did in any previous year. So the trade imbalance actually grew. So I guess we were all at home ordering stuff from Amazon. And uh, (laughs) yeah, I guess it makes sense if you think about it. But I'm a little shocked to hear that that stat. Me too. The first time I heard that the West Coast ports had increased in volume during the pandemic, I'm like, what? You know, I reread the articles, but sure enough, the statistics show everywhere that we had an increase in, in imports this year over last year. I mean, it's just amazing. It is. And with all of the increase in imports, then there's this flip side of the coin where companies are considering at the same time to move production out of China. How do you see that in the next five years? I mean, do you think we'll have a substantial shift because of what we've learned from the pandemic of moving production back to the U.S.? What will be the key drivers? That's a really great question. I would say you know, if I scroll back, you know, 10 or 15 years, I think executives were making decisions based solely on cost and what their competitors were doing and wanting to take a exciting trip to Shanghai, you know. Yeah, I actually had one executive tell me that he had never been to Shanghai and he was really looking forward to it. And, you know, that was the reason why we should start setting up operations there so he could go. No conflict of interest there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so there was some of that. But I think the decisions were more simplistic back then and really focused just on cost. And, you know, I don't know. To me, it seems like executives got a lot smarter in the last five years or so. And today's kind of decisions are very complicated. 
So it isn't just a matter of looking for a low cost environment. It's, you know, what should our manufacturing strategy be like? Where in the world should we be sourcing? Should we take advantage of sourcing from China, but also from Vietnam and maybe Indonesia and Bangladesh and Mexico? Central Mexico, by the way, the labor rates there are, are roughly equivalent to those in China. So the decision today is based on a much broader worldview, looking at the costs, of course, businesses always look at the costs, but also looking at uh, time to market, which markets are growing. So you don't want to shoot yourself in the foot. If your market is growing in China, you probably want to keep some operations there. And if it's, you know, your market is taking off in the U.S., then you probably need to look at um, potentially manufacturing here too. So maybe not either or, but having two operations. And that, you know, can be multiplied by three or four times. And all of a sudden, you've got a big global complex network of manufacturing. And that's where we are today. Executives got a lot smarter and a lot more analytical about making these sorts of decisions. And would you say there's more competition? We we see a lot of people who are independent sellers on Amazon and Walmart, different marketplaces around the world, Alibaba, of course. But then we also see this increase in D to C brands. Is that driving up costs for some of the larger retailers or do they control most of that? It's certainly shifting for sure. I mean, the Amazon effect is real and that's D to C. It is our expectations are different. I mean, now we order something and we want it here in a day or two. I mean, we're not going to wait around for two weeks for something to come. So there's different expectations, fulfillment requirements, as well as uh, you know the shifting business models around the world. I would say, from my perspective, that there is a trend towards a more D to C, and I think we'll see more of that going forward. But I don't know that there's ever going to be a full replacement for a retail environment with brick and mortar stores and uh, big retailers that offer a broad array of lines and vendors and and so forth. I think we're still going to see some department store activity and hopefully more after the pandemic we pass the worst part of it. You know, I think people are a little afraid to go into a lot of stores right now. So, I, you know, I don't really see it as a an either or or morphing into something different. It's just gotten more complex and there are mm-hmm. more options and more models available today than there ever have been in the past. And Rosemary, I know this is a little off track, but I just want to get your opinion because I did do a series while back on luxury in particular because China's one of the biggest drivers of the new luxury growth. And people were saying that it's really hard to break into the China market. So for retailers and brands selling into China, it's really tough. Has that been your experience with the companies you've worked with? Yes, absolutely. I have a lot of clients that are very frustrated trying to get a foothold in China. Advertising is different. People use much more mobile capabilities than they do you know, online with a laptop or a desktop. And most of the computing is done on their phones. You know, the retail environment is different from a payment perspective. It takes them a long time to develop brands. There are specifics about the culture too. Here's an example. If we look at our Amazon pages, there's a lot of white space and, you know, product is displayed in a kind of simple manner. If you look at a similar product being sold in China, 
the web page has got flashing lights and it's pink and red and it's you know got lots of text on the page and you know it's it's a different preference and a different culture and a different way of consuming information. And unfortunately, I think a lot of companies don't understand all that part of the culture. You know, having done business in China for 25 years, I've learned a lot about the culture for sure. But there are many days when, you know, I would go back to the hotel and all of a sudden I'd have an aha moment saying, oh, that's why that happened today, you know, because it's culture related or uh, you know, there's some protocol that happens in China that you it's nuanced and you don't necessarily notice it until you have some experience. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, you know, that's why that happened. This crazy happens like that and, and you don't recognize it until later you can see the patterns. And it must be tough because not only is the culture very different for retailers and brands to enter the Chinese market effectively, but also the pace is much faster. So not only do you have to adapt to a whole new style of advertising potentially and all of the technology, we know they're more advanced with tech, but the pace that you have to do it is incredible as well. I heard um, someone said they have billboards in China where they have the you know digital billboards for advertising and you'll often see mistakes sometimes made on the advertisements, but it doesn't matter because they're only up for eight hours. And then it's a completely new one. You'll never see the other one again. And if it's translated to English, we it's often uh, what we call Chinglish. Chinglish, yeah. Translation is bad. And it's, you know, it can be quite funny, actually. I have a whole uh, file full of Chinglish signs that are really hilarious because they were so poorly translated. Oh uh, but gosh. yeah, I mean, that's right. The pace is faster. The, the consumption of products is different. What appeals to the Chinese and or any culture for that matter has to be understood before you can be successful in that culture. And Rosemary, you can talk to this next question. I have to ask because it's it's very timely. Covering the retail segment, we're looking at the predictions for the upcoming holiday shopping season. And I wanted to get your point of view. That could be a global point of view or more North American focus, whatever you, you'd like. But what are you hearing? Well, definitely hearing there's going to be delays. Um, so getting your containers of um, holiday goods, whether it's decorative goods or apparel or, you know, gift items, that sort of thing out of China is going to be very difficult. You're going to find their delays and your time to market is extended by could be four, six weeks, something like that, which means you may miss the window of opportunity for the market. And I think we're going to experience lots of that this holiday season. So, you know, as far as getting electronics here, you know, I would say there there are going to be some out of stocks and, you know, there'll be some disappointed people and kids uh, because of that. I don't think it's a complete dearth of products. I'm not saying that, but there's certainly going to be limits and shortages on products uh, coming around the world, not just to the U.S., but mostly to the U.S. and Western Europe. And electronics is a big one especially for the increased demand we've seen over the past year for that category. So do you expect it to be any worse than last year for the electronics category or better? 
Oh yeah, I, I expect it to be worse. And you know, it's partly this these delays, but also a shortage of semiconductors around the world. You know, a few things have happened to contribute to semiconductor shortages. Um, certainly, the pandemic disrupted production for sure. But there are all kinds of shortages related to capacity issues and unexpected demand. You know, when we were all stuck at home, lots of us bought laptops and our kids were going to school on laptops. So we had to have additional laptops there. We bought electronic gadgets and so forth. And all those things consume semiconductors. So there was a a huge spike in demand and a sort of a whip of the supply chain that caused, you know, this, this shifting back and forth and a shortage of semiconductors across all electronics. I mean, it used everywhere and used in cars and laptops and desktops and phones and appliances and, you know, semiconductors are everywhere. And because of this shortage, we're going to see a shortage of products, I'm sure. Well, you heard it here to our listeners from supply chain expert Rosemary Coates. She's also the executive director of the Reshoring Institute and president of Blue Silk Consulting. Rosemary, you told me that you also have your own podcast. So I'd like to give you a moment to let our listeners know where they can get in touch with you and find more about what you do. Ah, great. I think the best way is to go to our website, which is reshoringinstitute.org. And on the tab under Thought Leadership, all of the podcasts that I host are listed there. Uh, My podcast is Women in Manufacturing, and we interview really interesting women that run company manufacturing companies across the country. Uh, So that's a fun one. But also on the website, we publish all of our research, all of our case studies, white papers, everything our students produce. It's all there on the website. So it's kind of a fun place to go and kind of filter around and see what's interesting to you. It's all downloadable. It's all free. We don't make you sign up for anything because we're nonprofit and nonpolitical. We we think we're a public service, so we publish everything. Uh, and people are free to go and have a look and have fun. So that's uh, reshoringinstitute.org. And you can contact us through that website as well at info at reshoringinstitute.org. Perfect. Thanks for joining today, Rosemary. I hope to have you on again. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. If you would like to be considered as a guest on our show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. For sponsorship opportunities, send us an email at media at rethink.industries. You can help support our team at Rethink Retail by dropping us a rating and review on your iTunes podcast app. To each and every one of you, thanks so much for tuning in. Retail never sleeps. See you next week.